from Great Britain via Israel to the world. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Tell your friends, spread the word, and subscribe now. Welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. There are lessons in the Mizrahi Jewish experience that need recounting with more prominence, overshadowed by the European Holocaust. Mizrahi is the Hebrew word for Easterners, Jews of North Africa and the Arab world. We all know the terms pogrom or Kristallnacht. How many of us know Fahud? It was the most traumatic event in the collective memory of Iraqi Jewry. And this podcast is released in the week of its 78th anniversary at the start of June 1941. It happened on the Jewish holiday of Shavuot, Shavuos, in a Nazi-inspired act of extreme violence. 180 people were murdered, thousands wounded and raped, shops and synagogues plundered and destroyed. My guest today is Lynn Julius. Her book, Uprooted, How 3,000 Years of Jewish Civilization in the Arab World Vanished Overnight, was the result of over 10 years of research. Lynn co-founded Kharif, the UK Association of Jews from the Middle East and North Africa, who advocate for the rights of ex-refugees from Arab countries and Iran to raise knowledge of history and culture of the Jews from the Middle East and North Africa, the Mizrahim and the Sephardim. That's Hebrew for Spanish, those Jews from historical Spain and Portugal who ended up in, among many other places, North Africa. Anti-Semitism mutates and changes through time, and we discuss the latest attempt by the American commentator Mark Lamont Hill to describe Mizrahi Jews as an identity category that had been detached from Palestinian identity. Behind Lamont Hill's statement are two misconceptions common on the far left. The first, Lynn says, is that Mizrahim are natural allies of the Palestinians, Jewish Arabs, in fact, torn away from making common cause with them by European Zionism. And the second myth is that Mizrahim lived peacefully side by side with Muslims until Israel ruined the relationship, an idea belied by centuries of Jewish inequality, sporadic pogroms and the ever-present pressure to convert to Islam. Lynn sees Nazi ideology and political form in plain sight in the Ba'ath Party and Muslim Brotherhood. And she says UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Work Agency's right of return policy, amounts to another Holocaust. I do believe that the Palestinian ultimate goal is the right of return. As measured by the numbers of UNRWA. In other words, like millions of people. Yeah, millions. But if you Which means the the potential for another Holocaust. Let's let's say what it is. Yeah, that that is. Which is what Jeremy Corbyn supports. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Without really realising it. Do you think he doesn't realise it? Uh well I don't think if you put it in those stark terms. But that's what it is, isn't it? Yeah, that's what it amounts to. The Arab Spring may not have delivered the hope and green shoots of freedom and democracy the commentariat had hoped for. But maybe it had other effects. It rekindled Arab countries' sense of loss of their Jews and dissenting voices from within. Well, they've begun to be raised. Jews and other minorities, Christians, for example, have all been but erased from their populations, as Hillel Neuer expressed most famously of all at the UN Human Rights Council debate which targeted Israel in March 2017. Where is the apartheid? 
And where are your Jews? Once upon a time, the Middle East was full of Jews. Algeria had 140,000 Jews. Algeria, where are your Jews? Egypt used to have 75,000 Jews. Where are your Jews? Syria, you had tens of thousands of Jews. Where are your Jews? Iraq, you had over 135,000 Jews. Where are your Jews? Mr. President, why are we meeting today on an agenda item singling out only one state, the Jewish state, for targeting? Where is the apartheid, Mr. President? But as Lynn will explain, the full reality checks from Israel's neighbours are yet to be completed. On Zionists and Jews as separate categories, Lynn says you can't separate Zionists and Jews because our enemies always conflate them. I have yet to meet or hear from any who would publicly recognise the Jewish state. Here now is the remarkable Lynn Julius. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. For those who listen. For those who are willing to listen. Lynn, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me over to your home to talk to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. I wanted to discuss the ideas uh, your book highlighted because it carries such an important message that the Mizrahi experience of Jewry appears to have been credited out by other recent Jewish history. Yes, I think uh, there are several reasons for this. Uh, one is that the Mizrahi story really is not given the prominence it deserves. Um, a, because the Israeli government neglected it for a long time, and B, because the diaspora Jewish community is basically Ashkenazi, with a few exceptions, like, for instance, um, France, where there is a majority Sephardi community. There's another reason too, and that's the Mizrahim themselves have really neglected to tell their story. They were busy rebuilding their lives after being sort of thrown out of Arab countries. And they were not particularly political people anyway. You're from an Iraqi background. Yes, that's right. Both my parents were born in Baghdad and they came as refugees to the UK in 1950. And this was also the time when 90% of the Jewish community of Iraq left Iraq, but um, the vast majority went to Israel. So we were in a very small minority who didn't. Now, Jews lived continuously in the Middle East and North Africa for about 3,000 years. But in just 50 years, their indigenous communities around and outside Palestine almost totally disappeared as nearly all of them completely fled. Why? Um, I would say that the root causes of this exodus actually predate Israel and have something to do with the way the Jews were treated as a minority in the Muslim world. And also I would, I would attribute this whole exodus to the influence of uh, kind of Nazi-inspired anti-Semitism, European anti-Semitism, that really took hold in the Arab and Muslim world in the 1930s. The Führer receives the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, one of the most influential men in Arab nationalism. The Grand Mufti is the religious head of all Arabs in the Mandate, the supreme judge and director of finances. Because of his national inclination, the British have pursued him relentlessly and have placed a £25,000 bounty on his head. He came to Germany on a risky journey. Nazism spread east. 
And I'm just wondering whether actually there's a new form of Nazism now mm-hmm. in and around uh, the borders of Israel. Mm-hmm. For example, we cannot escape the fact that Persia mm-hmm. changed its name yeah. to Iran yes. by order and friendship yeah. Yeah. of uh, Hitler's Germany. That's right. I mean, the British were dead scared in case uh, a pro-Nazi... That the, the Shah, who was in power at the time, was, was going to turn out to be pro-Nazi. So they actually deposed him. There was a, a kind of uh, a, a pro-British coup in, during the war, and they put his son in his place. Uh, but of course, you know, there were other considerations. They were worried about Iranian oil falling into Nazi hands. But actually, pro-Nazi influence goes back quite a long way. It goes back to the rise of Hitler and that the Arab world uh, was far more sympathetic to the Germans than they were to the British and the French. In fact, because the Arab world was under uh, colonial rule for the most part, you know, the British mandates in Palestine and Iraq and the French protectorates in North Africa, the Arabs sided with the Germans but I would argue it wasn't simply a pragmatic alliance, you know, that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. There was a kind of profound ideological aspect to this. Um, if you look at the activities of the Mufti of Jerusalem, he uh, allied himself, or he was pressing to ally himself with the, the, uh, the Germans throughout the 30s. And finally... He managed it. There was a pro-Nazi coup in Iraq, and in fact, Iraq signed an alliance with Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. And the Mufti was a, was a primary driving force, if you like, was the driving force behind this pro-Nazi coup. And had Rommel not been defeated at El Alamein in uh, North Africa, um, the Mufti would have gone ahead and managed the extermination of the Jews all over the Arab world, not just in Palestine. So he wouldn't just have stopped short of declaring German victory over the British and the French. He would have gone ahead and implemented um, the final solution. So how much of the Nazi ideology defeated in Europe yeah. in World War Two has in fact re-emerged in political form in organisations like the Ba'ath Party, yeah. And the Muslim Brotherhood of today, That's Islamic right. Jihad, That's Hamas. Right. Yeah. Well, I would argue that they haven't actually re-emerged. They were there all the time. The Muslim Brotherhood was founded in 1928. Um, and it was a an Islamic movement to re-establish the caliphate, which had come to an end with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. But it was also inspired by the Nazis. And it had imbibed, you know, Nazi ideas of anti-Semitism. And of course, Hamas is the local branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. And all these offshoots like ISIS and uh, and Al-Qaeda are directly linked mm. to the Muslim Brotherhood. So that really never went away. Of course, there was another kind of trend in the Arab world in the 1920s and 1930s and that was the emergence of ultra-nationalist parties like the Ba'ath Party. Um, There's a party called the Syrian uh, Socialist National Party which has as its emblem uh, a flag that's 
black and white and red and, and actually is almost indistinguishable from, from the Nazi uh, swastika. And that party still exists today. And these parties were ultra-nationalist sort of blood and soil um, parties that, that actually wanted to exclude the Jews and other minorities from um, from the the sort of independent Arab states that they wanted to emerge. So moving in towards more contemporary uh, moments, the so-called Arab Spring, like so many uh, acts of upheaval which potentially bring with them a newer form of anti-Semitism, uh, have reawakened the sense of loss that those countries have felt mm-hmm. um, at suddenly turning around and realising there aren't any Jews there anymore. Mm-hmm. A spring, Jim, but not as we know it. <laughs> I agree. I think, you know, it raised a false hope that um, somehow things would change. There's one positive aspect of the Arab Spring, and that is it has brought more freedom uh, in Arab countries for Arabs to actually express themselves. Um, and, and it's brought, brought a kind of nostalgia, as you say, for the past, the past where the Jews were you know played a very important part uh in in the economy and and in society and in culture uh and and we've seen this very clearly in Iraq where there's been a kind of wave of sympathy that that's kind of spread through social media and you know you find that um uh, you know that that the the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs has 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 a huge number of followers from Iraq, you know, and and they're all interested in, in uh, you know, in in Jews from from mm, that part of mm, the world. Mm. I think the big disappointment is that um, you know they want to turn the clock back. They want the Jews to come back. They want to you know there is no attempt to really come to terms with the present, you know, and the present is that. Uh, most Mizrahi Jews now live in Israel and the Arab world needs to reach an accommodation with this fact, you know, and build bridges with Israel, not, you know, with a mythical past. Yes. With the United Nations Watch. Mr. President, one year ago in this chamber, I asked the Arab states a simple question. Where are your Jews? My question was met with dead silence. Millions of people worldwide watched the video, witnessing for themselves the hypocrisy and double standards that characterizes much of what is said and done here. Today I have come to provide the answer to my question. Algeria, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, Lebanon, Yemen, Libya. Your Jews fled as refugees after suffering persecution and deadly pogroms like the Farhud of Baghdad in 1941. Fortunately, countries like Israel, the U.S., Canada, France, and others opened their doors offering citizenship and equal rights. These Jewish refugees from Arab lands whose suffering and losses the U.N. has never addressed put their hardship behind them and built great lives for their families. Now let us contrast this with the situation of those descended from Arab refugees who fled the area of British mandatory Palestine during the invasion of nascent Israel by Arab armies. What is holding them back? 
The answer is simple. Palestinians are the only population in the world not eligible for services by the UN Refugee Agency. Instead, these descendants are governed by UNRWA, which holds generation after generation trapped in refugee camps, denied integration in the Arab countries they were born in, and denied resettlement elsewhere. Some of UNRWA's donors are waking up to the problem, as Swiss Foreign Minister has recently put it, by supporting UNRWA, we are only keeping the conflict alive. I thank you, Mr. President. I want to talk to you about the idea, if I'd extend to that, like the Jews are never going to go back to Syria. No. You know, we're never going to have Aleppo cookery books again, you know, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, we're not going to go to Tehran, we're not going to go to, you know, Beirut or, you know, yeah. Yeah. wherever else you want, we're going to go back to Gaza, <laughs> even. Uh, the thing is, right, I went on holiday regularly to places like uh, Sicily mm -hmm. and um, Portugal yeah. and Tenerife. This emptying of Jewish communities has happened through the centuries. You go anywhere where Ryanair flies in Europe yeah. and you find the ghosts of medieval communities, Alguero, Genova, Tarragona, Barcelona, Tenerife, all of Sicily, hilltop mm -hmm. villages mm -hmm. with Jewish toll gates, yeah. deserted orchards. I've seen it all. It's not a modern phenomenon of the declaration of the Jewish state, is it? No, Jews exactly. have always. And I'm thinking to myself, right, you know, there it is. This is about, I don't know, 500 miles from Haifa. Yeah. Jews are never going to come back there. No. So uh, this concentration of um, Jewish um, life yeah. now in Israel from top to bottom. Yeah. is, as you say, something yeah. that uh, their non-Jewish neighbours in the Arab world, as they fight to establish any form of civilization, it doesn't have to be democratic, but anything yeah. uh, that isn't war-based, uh, will have to get used to. Yeah, 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 absolutely. When's that going to yeah. happen, Lynn? When, well, this is, this is the big question. <laughs> this is what question. it's all been rounding up to. Yeah, yeah, when's, when, when's that going to happen? I mean, first of all, I think these countries have to acknowledge the truth, the historical truth that they kicked out their Jews. You can't blame the Jews themselves for their own exodus. Um, you know, you have to take responsibility, as, as the Germans did, you know, after the war. They said, mea culpa, we did it, we, we created this problem, you know, we, we are the, you know, we are the authors of this tragedy and we apologize and, and here's some compensation and, and, you know, here's some recognition. And of course, that's, that would never, ever, you know, be adequate. But it's a start. At least they have acknowledged responsibility. And this hasn't happened with the Arab countries. You know, never have we heard an Arab country actually, you know, I mean, I'm talking about governments. No government has actually apologised for the mass exodus of their Jew Jewish citizens. You do occasionally hear a brave individual saying, you know, like it happened with a, uh, an Iraqi TV presenter not so long ago, and he actually went public and said, oh, we apologise for what we've done. But you won't hear an Arab government. They're too busy either denying that it's happened or blaming the Zionists for it or blaming the Jews themselves uh, or saying that the Jews left of their own free will. You know, and until we kind of overcome that, that big obstacle, that big mental block, I don't think we're going to get anywhere. You're listening to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. 
If you like my regular podcasts, please think about making a donation. My podcasts are free, and I want to keep them free, and so donations really help me keep them that way. Head over to my donations page at www.patreon.com slash johnnygould. So, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of uh, those Mizrahim are Israelis, the beating heart of Israeli culture. Mm-hmm. A they culture, mm-hmm. well, they really are, because mm-hmm. as an Ashkenazi, with my lakshan soup and, you know, <laughs> my kuchel... You're feeling a bit beleaguered. It, you know, yeah. and, and it's falafel and stuff, it's all very nice. Yeah. It's yeah. lovely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not better. my culture. <laughs> it's, it's better for you. It's healthier. Is it better for you? Yeah, yeah. Well, the sunshine is certainly better for you. Um, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, it is the beating heart of what Israel is. Hummus, falafel. This is the, you know, I'm not going to get locked from that easily. Yeah. So you yeah. know, that's Israel, and yeah, it comes absolutely. from the Mizrahim. It comes from the Iraqis and the Yemenites and the the Lebanese, and it's 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 everyone um, together, and it's a very very beautiful thing. Uh, the Zionism, the bit that sort of triggered it, the political force came from, well, Middle Europe. Has that been, because that Zionism was the political uh, driving force, the social and cultural driving force of modern Israel, has that come at the expense mm-hmm. uh, of the Mizrahim? So, like, um, you know, we, we'll be prime minister, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, you, you'll, do, you, you, you'll do the cooking. You know, like, I, I, you know, has that, I'm yeah. just stripping it down. Yeah. That's got to come to an end. Hasn't it? Well, I think it's been exaggerated. I think there's a lot of talk of um, of the discrimination that the Mizrahim uh, experienced when they first arrived in the 50s and 60s, and you can't deny that there was such a thing. Um, I I mean that it was um, it is a fact, Uh, but it's getting it's becoming less and less important. I think in Israeli society as um you know people intermarry across across the ethnic uh, divide and you yourself are an example of, of someone who's married exactly. a Moroccan lady so and I, I i myself married an ashkenazi and of How course all this is well i'm still recovering <laughs> yeah. no no it is lovely and and we're producing wonderful ashkefadi children uh, <laughs> who combine the best of both of both cultures um, uh, you know, I th- I think so. So I think this this discrimination narrative has really exaggerated the divisions between the ethnicities, and actually, um, that there are Sephardis. I mean, Sephardis have a terrible reputation for discriminating against people who are non-Sephardi. You know, and each each wave of of immigration into Israel resented. Uh, resented the, the the people who came after them. Yeah. Right. So it's it's a kind of fact of human nature. But but in terms of the makeup of Israeli society, I mean there are Mizrahim who've done ex- extremely well, um, and they have they now occupy every you know every position in in government. They're well represented in the Knesset. Uh, and as you say, they are the beating heart of Israeli culture, music, um, you know, the, the, that cannot be denied. The one area of, of Israeli society where they are not well represented, really, or two areas, one is the media and the other is academia, um, 
you know, there are still there are still not enough Mizrahi professors around, and and uh, radio presenters. So, <laughs> but but hopefully that that is going to change. Well, there'll be a few in the queue ahead of me because my Ivrit's not up to scratch. <laughs> um, now, look, my Sephardi brother-in-law in Strasbourg told me something so disappointing the other week when I was with him. Mm. For Yom HaShoah, of course, the uh, anniversary uh, commemorating the uh, Jewish Holocaust, mm. it's mainly the Ashkenazim of Strasbourg's community. And let me explain that Strasbourg is, I don't know, half Ashkenazi, half Sephardi, and then another half mm. ultra-religious. Mm. Um they don't turn up the ultra religious the Sephardim um, isn't that sad I really you know look at my Sephardi family my brand new Sephardi family and all I can see is people who look exactly the same as me I, I mean that they uh, they daven yes. slightly differently yes. they have a slightly different tune but believe me they're um, Daphina and Cholent are the same thing they are <laughs> they are they are actually you're quite right <laughs> we have a lot in common more than more than we think yeah yeah I know this is a very disappointing thing that uh, you know if if Sephardim don't feel that the Holocaust is their story. Well, they are mistaken mm -hmm. because the Holocaust affected Jews, uh, Jews in North Africa. Uh, there were the, the pro-Nazi Vichy regimes in place uh, in Algeria and Morocco and Tunisia and the Italian fascists were in Libya. Jews did suffer. They, they were sent to labor camps Thousands of Tunisian Jews, um, you know, were sent to labor camps under the direct Nazi occupation of 1942. And, you know, certainly the intention to exterminate um, all the Jews in, in North Africa and the Middle East was there. You know, it's just that by sheer dint of good luck, you know, the fact that Rommel, Rommel was defeated at El Alamein by the Allies... It was it was purely luck um, that these Jews were spared. So you know it was it was definitely a, a threat to these Jews. And and in Iraq there was even a pro-Nazi pogrom that killed hundreds of mm -hmm. Jews, mm -hmm. the Farhuz in 1941. And this was directly attributable to uh, to pro-Nazi or Nazi propaganda, anti-Jewish propaganda, the activities of the pro-Nazi Mufti of Jerusalem. Uh, you know, you cannot deny that the Holocaust could easily have affected all these Jews. So I do regret the fact that, you know, that Sephardim are not taking as much interest in, um, you know, and, and this is our history as, you know, this is the history of the Jewish people. Yes, it is. And we have to take on board the history of the Sephardim. The Ashkenazim have to take on board that history and the Sephardim have to take on board the history of the Ashkenazim. Tell me about the possibility of peace with uh, our Arab neighbours through the prism of the Mizrahi Jews mm -hmm. who are metaphorically and physically closer to those neighbours than Ashkenazim. Mm -hmm. Just because Jews might, might speak Arabic and might uh, share a culture with their Arab neighbours that they might necessarily be able to build bridges uh, with them. I mean, it's a fact that most Mizrahi and Sephardi Jews support 
the Likud party in Israel, they vote for Netanyahu and, and parties to the right of him. And there's a very simple reason for that, I believe, and that is their rather fraught history in Arab countries, uh, pogroms, discrimination, persecution, um, and this makes them, you know, doubly wary of their Arab neighbours. Um, but there is a way that their whole issue would be able to, to, to actually help make peace, and that is that there was an actual exchange of populations between the Arab world uh, and the Jewish world, and almost equal numbers of Palestinians and Mizrahi Jews exchanged places in the Middle East. And the sooner that fact is appreciated, I think we can, you know, that improves the chances for peace and reconciliation. I do believe that the Palestinian ultimate goal is the right of return. As measured of, by the numbers of UNRWA, in yeah, other words, well, like millions of people. Yeah, millions. But if you Which take means the, actual, the potential for another Holocaust, let's, yeah, let's that's tell right, it, say that's what right. it is. Yeah, that, that is Which is what Jeremy right. Corbyn supports. Yeah, yeah, that's right, without really realising it. Do you think he doesn't realise it? Uh, well, I don't think if you put it in those stark terms... But that's admit, what it is, isn't it? Yeah, that's what it amounts to. So, basically, the, the truth is there was an exchange of populations. One lot want to return, and the other lot do not want to return. Mm -hmm. The Jews the Jews will, you know, would be absolutely crazy to want to return to countries that remain as hostile to them as uh, they were when those Jews were forced to leave. So these are genuine refugees, you know, who have rebuilt their lives elsewhere, not just in Israel, but in the West. Um, and um, I think the, there has to be a sea change in, in the way the Arabs really view this. You know, people, people should, should, not, should not support their right of return because it doesn't make sense in the context of the refugee exchange you know um, and of course it doesn't exist in international law this right of return it's a purely fictitious right uh, but the international community have not pulled them up on this and said look you're being really totally unrealistic there's another set of refugees here who actually left in equal numbers to you get real you know, and, and admit that this was an irrevocable and permanent exchange. Mm -hmm. and, and that's how we can move forward. You know. Let's talk about Mark Lament Hill. <laughs> he dismisses Mizrahi Jews as an identity category of Palestinians. Yeah. Oh, leave us alone yeah. is my, well, it's, it's a statement rather than a question. Do you agree mm. with that? Well, of course not. <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. Yes, leave yeah, us alone. Yeah. Absolutely. I think Lamont Hill is a symptom of a disease that's been spreading in, in the far left. And that is uh, that they've tried to instrumentalize Mizrahi Jews as a weapon against um, against Zionism. They could never split the Mizrahi Jews from the state of Israel, could they? They, they definitely are trying they to. They could never do that, uh, and surely. And based on a misunderstanding that Mizrahi Jews are actually Arabs of the Jewish faith and they have more in common with uh, Muslim Arabs than they do with uh, European Jews. 
Ashkenazi Jews. So but they could never, that's unbreakable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, of course it is. Tell but, me it is. But, yeah. but the people on, on the far left don't necessarily know very much about Mizrahim. They, they probably get taken in by, um, by a lot of propaganda. Um, and, and of course, you know, this is, this is actually a very uh, worrying trend, certainly in America and in the Democratic Party. Uh, where you have had um, congresswomen who have, have made clearly anti-Semitic statements and who do not really understand what makes Israel tick. Um, you know, they, they have applied a very simplistic post-colonial paradigm uh, to the country. They call it a white colonial state. Um, they call it apartheid with you know when the real apartheid is what's going on in the Arab world I mean, the Arabs have got rid of of their Jews they've practically got rid of all their minorities uh, I mean this is apartheid isn't it mm-hmm. um, I want to talk about the future of America because even though there's a very high index of Jewish people there mm-hmm. in our lifetimes you know I seem to remember the number of Jews in New York being 5 million and 3 million in Israel and mm. now New York's going down and down and down and Israel's going up and up and up. Mm. I think it's what 3 million Jews in New York and something like 7 million Jews in Israel right now. And so the question is a simple one. Even though there's a high index of Jews left in Florida mm-hmm. and in California and in New York, are they not like the Jews of Alexandria in Egypt? Yeah. In other words, the Jews of America are basically doomed to becoming Americans in time and the Jews that want to remain Jews will leave America. Mm -hmm. I I must say, I mean, it is a very sad scenario, but I do agree with you. I think um, the assimilation rate is said to be 70% now. I mean, that is is disastrous. Or is it helpful? What remains is very strong. Now, we, we might only be 15 million, 16 million strong, mm. and we might never have recovered mm-hmm. from the Holocaust, and we may never. Mm. Mm. But look what's happened since. Look at the strength of Israel. Yes, I mean, that, that is And the true. Western world of Jews. Um, I'm not sure that applies to the Western world, because I think the assimilation rate in, in the West is also pretty alarming. But what I mean by that is the emancipation of the Jews. I mean, m- yeah. in, in the Western world, uh, Jews do yeah. function freely. They can go to university. They can have jobs, yeah. except in the BBC. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know. <laughs> no, I know. They, I mean, they, they have been a very successful um, community in the West. And as you say, they've, they've, you know, they've excelled in every field. I think it's a double-edged sword, though, because the more emancipated they feel, um, the more likely they are to assimilate uh, in in society. And therefore, you know, the number of, of actual identifying Jews is is doomed to go down. Uh, but going back to America for a, for a second, um, there's a polarization, isn't there? And and it is said that. You know, because of the birth rate of the the Orthodox sector, that the American uh, Jewish community, um, what's happened is is that the Orthodox will actually become a major component of the American Jewish community in a few generations. Uh, but it means that we're kind of losing 
people at the other end of the spectrum, you know. It's it's really quite alarming, you know. I mean, the, these Jews have been amongst the most successfully assimilated Jews in history, you know, and they've contributed so much to American culture, to the film industry, to pop music, uh, you know, to every aspect. Um, and yet, you know, I think we're losing them. They, yeah. the, the, they're too liberal for their own good, I think. And, you know, it's true to say that the Democratic Party, and they vote for, for the Democratic Party, you know, regardless of, say, the Democratic Party's position on Israel. And, and this is quite alarming. It means that their priorities are, are not Israel at all. Lynn, for every Newcastle, there's a Gateshead. <laughs> now, and finally, right. I, I mean, that's basically the truth of it, isn't it? I mean, there were Jews in Newcastle. There aren't now, no. apart from, you know, someone yeah. to unlock the shul yeah. for some old men. That's right. And Switch there's the Gateshead, which is um, yeah. a fairly vibrant that's religious right. community just over the time. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's just about it, isn't it? It's the story of the world. That is the story. Um, now, can I ask you about the beautiful woman on the front of Uprooted? Because every time we search... Hmm. For Lynn Julius, this beautiful woman appears. I'm not yeah. saying you're not beautiful, Lynn, <laughs> but there's a very beautiful, there's a very beautiful uh, hmm. woman on the front here, and she's an Egyptian actress. That's right. Well, I mean, I'm very flattered that people think it's me because <laughs> you know it's not not um, you know that that would really be a, a, a fantastic compliment because she is a very beautiful woman. Very sad story, actually. Uh, oh, this woman is is Camelia, who. Uh, was an, an actress in Egypt in the 1940s. Her real name was Lillian Levy-Cohen, and she was very prolific. She made like 18 films in the space of three years, between the ages of 18 and 21. And sadly, she died in a, in a plane crash. Now, it was rumoured that King Farouk... Um, had her as, as his mistress and that he engineered this plane crash because it wasn't convenient. The, oh uh, so that that's the legend, but of course we, we don't know. It's probably a conspiracy theory. But I chose to put her on, on my front cover because she really represents the Jewish contribution to culture and, and Jews were prominent, you know, in the 1920s, 1930s. Uh, they were not just actors, actors and actresses, but directors, musicians. In fact, most musicians in Iraq were Jewish. This is a, a not a very well-known fact, actually, that, that Jews played such an important role in, in Arab society. So that's the story of Camellia, not by any means the most famous of Jewish actresses in, in Egypt. There was one much more famous than than she and that's Leila Murad but I thought it was a bit too obvious to have Leila Murad on the front cover you did well <laughs> and Julius thank you very much indeed. pleasure never miss another Johnny Gould's Jewish State and be first to hear the next show by subscribing now Follow Johnny Gould on Twitter and Johnny Gould Show on Facebook. And if you liked what you heard today, leave a rating or review. That really helps bring more listeners to the show.